Welcome to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with true crime masters and New York Times bestselling authors, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, part one of Terror Strikes Boston, our hosts take you inside Boston Strong, their definitive account of the Boston Marathon bombings, later adapted into the major Hollywood film Patriot's Day, starring Mark Wahlberg. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. Patriot's Day, Lexington, Massachusetts, April 15, 2013, 5.45 a.m. The cold ground trembles as the drumbeat of war echoes across Lexington Green, where thousands of spectators huddle together against the early morning chill. With their hands tucked in the lined pockets of their heavy coats and heads wrapped in the warmth of woolen hats, hoodies, and scally caps, these hardy onlookers gather to witness the annual bloodletting ritual that has grown to symbolize the violent birth of the American Revolution. Revolutionary reenactors stand facing each other. The British regulars on one side, the Minutemen on the other. Suddenly, the crack of a musket shot reverberates across the Lexington Green. The battle has begun. The brilliant flashes of orange and white explode from the muzzles of redcoat muskets, and on cue, the Minutemen begin to fall on this sacred ground. The crowd gasps. As the violence reaches its climax, when a British regular plunges his bayonet into the chest of a single downed colonist, the Lexington Green disappears under a blanket of gray smoke that masks the faces of dying men screaming where they lay. The smoke soon rises off the green, revealing to all the sacrifice beneath. Once again, blood has been theatrically spilled here, the annual ritual is complete. Now, many gathering here will continue to honor their Patriot's Day traditions while cheering on friends and loved ones participating in the 117th running of the Boston Marathon, which is just a few hours from now. The unsuspecting celebrants will be joined there by two young men, Tamerlan and Jokar Sarnaev who are planning a blood ritual of their own. Tamerlan Tsarnaev had killed before, in 2011, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. The Chechen immigrant entered an apartment at 12 Harding Avenue in Waltham, Massachusetts, where his friend Brendan Mess lived. There were two other men in the apartment that night, a couple of local stoners named Eric Weissman and Rafi Tekken. Tamerlan talked with his friend Brendan for an uncertain period of time, their voices never rising high enough to alert neighbors to any trouble. Suddenly, a knife appeared in Tamerlan's hand. With the help of a companion, a fellow Chechen immigrant and MMA fighter named Ibrahim Todeshev, Tamerlan attacked the three victims, slitting each of their throats from ear to ear. The killers left their bodies in separate rooms, but in identical positions. 
lying on their stomachs with their heads positioned slightly to the right. All of them were covered with marijuana leaves and stems. The bodies grew cold overnight as the blood of each victim congealed on the floor inside the apartment on Harding Avenue. Tamerlan didn't attend the wake or the funeral for his friend Brendan Mess. The fact that the murders had occurred on the anniversary of September 11th held no special significance to local police. Instead of being grilled by investigators, Tamerlan breezily made his way to Logan Airport and he booked a flight home to Dagestan where he attended a terrorist training camp. The murders in Waltham were merely a prelude, though, to the bloody spectacle that was to come. One year later, Tamerlan's younger brother, Jokar, would receive his American citizenship on the 11th anniversary of 9-11 and the first anniversary of his brother's bloodbath inside the apartment in Waltham. April 15, 2013. Danny Keeler calls it Easy Money Day. The veteran detective had once been called Mr. Homicide and the Dirty Harry of Boston. Keeler is the model for the character Mark Wahlberg plays in Patriot's Day. His instincts are unsurpassed in the BPD, and he had closed many of the most difficult murder cases in the city, in neighborhoods like Roxbury and Mattapan, where black-on-black crime was often overlooked. But Keeler never felt that way, and that made him a hero to the rank-and-file Boston cops. All that seems like a lifetime ago now. His life and career hasn't been the same since 2004, when he investigated the murder of a 14-year-old black girl who was buried alive on the grounds of an abandoned hospital. Her name was Shante Jones, and she was eight months pregnant. She had been murdered by her older boyfriend, who didn't want to face statutory rape charges. So instead, he bashed her head in with a rock, stabbed and choked her. Shantae was still breathing when the boyfriend and a buddy dug a shallow ditch and buried her. Danny Keeler had a confession from the killer and the case seemed airtight. That was until the trial. Since there was no blood and no fingerprints to connect the boyfriend to the murder, the jury allowed him to walk. Shantae's family didn't blame the jury. They blamed Keeler who told them, trust the system. You tell a disenfranchised people of this world, like the Jones family, that the system works, Keeler said at the time. We told them, don't react to the situation with violence. Wait, we got him. He's confessed. And now this? They believed in us, and we let them down. For a brief time after that, Keeler lost his way. Later, he was accused of swiping a pair of expensive sunglasses during a theft investigation and also faced a 30-day suspension for another infraction. Mr. Homicide had become Mr. Controversy. On Patriot's Day 2013, Danny Keeler is still serving his penance. He's no longer in charge of the big murder cases in Boston. Instead, He's playing babysitter at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, keeping college kids from getting too rowdy at the bars on Boylston Street. He puts on his orange vest, and Danny Keeler goes to work. On this morning, Tamerlan Sarnayev is clean-shaven for the first time in months. 
gone as the thick beard he'd grown while in Dagestan the year before. He puts on a white v-neck t-shirt, tan pants, and a black baseball cap with white trim. His brother Jokar wears a dark v-neck t-shirt, a beige hoodie, dark pants, and a white baseball cap, which he has on backwards. The younger Sarnayev looks like any other college student at the finish line that day, but that's the old Jokar. A student at University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, Jokar will prove to be something completely different on this day. The brothers carefully load two homemade pressure cooker bombs into nylon backpacks and lift the straps over their shoulders to feel the weight. The bombs are built inside the pressure cookers as the online instructions suggested. The devices are filled with ball bearings, zippers, nails, and black powder. Each bomb carries an improvised explosive fuse made from a string of Christmas lights. They'll be set off by remote-controlled detonators fashioned from model car parts. The brothers make their way to Boylston Street in the early afternoon. The first surveillance photo of the pair is time-stamped at 2.37 p.m. It shows Tamerlan and Jokar on nearby Gloucester Street. Tamerlan is wearing his backpack over both shoulders, military style. His dark sunglasses hide his sinister eyes. Jokar is carrying his backpack student-style, slung low over one shoulder. The brothers stop in front of Whiskey Smokehouse, a popular bar on Boylston Street, They chat briefly with their eyes scanning the crowd. They soon part ways. Tamerlan walks north on Boylston Street before taking up a position just outside Marathon Sports at 671 Boylston. The crowd of spectators is four to five people deep. Multinational flags wave in the breeze while runners cross the finish line with arms raised in personal triumph while loved ones cheer from the sidewalk. Jokar walks south further away from the finish line, looking for his perfect target. He strolls past Forum Restaurant at 755 Boylston, and something suddenly catches his eye. It's a family, the perfect American family, with a dad, a mom, two boys, and a little girl. In the young terrorist mind, this target is perfect. He strolls back and forth for nine seconds, looking for the ideal spot to drop his bomb. Once he finds it, he calls his brother. At approximately 2.48 p.m., Tamerlan receives the call from Jokar on a prepaid throwaway cell phone. That conversation lasts 19 seconds. The call ends and both men walk casually away, leaving their backpacks on the sidewalk behind them. Michelle LaRue is following her boyfriend Brian's progress through a phone app. A client relations manager for John Hancock Insurance the major sponsor for the marathon, Michelle has taken the day off from work to have cocktails with her friends and to cheer Brian on at the finish line. Another young woman, Mary Daniel, has taken the day off too. She's been studying for the medical board so hard that her eyeballs hurt. A native of Haiti, Mary's never experienced the Boston Marathon before. Now is her chance. Mary had wanted to bring her five-year-old daughter, Sierra, with her to the finish line, but decided against it at the last minute. She's worried that she'll lose the little girl in the swelling crowd. Mary and Michelle are both standing in front of Marathon Sports. Michelle is just a few feet away from another spectator. His name is Jeff Bauman. He's with a group of friends watching his girlfriend, Aaron Hurley, 
run the race. Hey, Casey. Like our fans who tune in here on Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers, we're all about truth. Working on our projects, I need a boost sometimes. I love my coffee, but I'm really loving these true lifestyle drinks. Me too, Dave. There are six different flavors for every activity. They're gluten and GMO-free, organic, vegan, and there's no artificial sweeteners or additives. They're clean, and they contain all sorts of vitamins and nutrients, and they're damn tasty. You know, True's founder, Jack McNamara, is a former pro hockey player, and he created True because he was looking for healthy energy drinks that wouldn't make you crash. I've been loving Energy, the Orange Mango Wake Up Blend, as well as Focus, the Apple Kiwi Brain Blend. Jack and his team have scientifically engineered some game-changing beverages, and I'm working several of them into my daily routine. And I'm making them part of my lifestyle, too. True drinks for true crime fans. Go to drinktrue.com and use the code SAINTS to get 30% off your purchase. Now, back to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers. Michelle gets a call from her boyfriend, Brian. He's just crossed the finish line and is now gathering his belongings. I'll come meet you guys, he says. I know where you are. I love you, Michelle replies. Right then. The Boston Marathon finish line is rocked by a thunderous explosion. Plumes of white smoke swirl high into the air, masking the agonizing screams below. The smoke is similar to the battle recreated on the Lexington Green hours earlier, only this time it's real and it's catastrophic. Michelle LaRue is in the middle of a nightmare. First, she hears the loud explosion and then looks up to see a lamppost shaking from the blast. Oh my God, this is a terrorist attack, she thinks immediately. Now she can't hear a thing. People are on the ground bleeding all around her, screaming in pain, but all she hears is dead silence. She sees a foot in a sneaker on the ground next to her. A few feet away, Jeff Bauman is sitting on the ground. Both of his legs are now gone. That's not real, Michelle tells herself. She sees another woman, later identified as a local restaurant manager named Crystal Campbell, eviscerated in her own blood. Again, she can't believe it. Michelle limps toward Marathon Sports. Blood is quickly filling her boot. The windows of the building are shattered. She stumbles into the store and yells, Please help me, please help me. Down the street at Forum Restaurant, all heads turn in the direction of the blast. Was that some kind of transformer explosion, a few spectators ask? One person isn't looking down the street at all toward the huge plumes of smoke. That's Jokar Sanaev. He's facing in the opposite direction. He turns and walks away. And then 12 seconds later... Danny Keeler is sprinting toward Marathon Sports when he hears the second blast behind him. He's a Marine Corps veteran and knows what a bomb sounds like. But since he's closer to the explosion at Forum... He turns around and heads that way. There's panic everywhere. He sees a leg on the street. It's on fire. Keeler then grabs his radio. His call sign is Delta 984. And he's now in charge of the biggest murder scene in Boston history. This is Danny Keeler's actual 911 call from that fateful day. Delta 
Jokar's backpack has exploded directly behind an eight-year-old boy named Martin Richard. Broken nails, ball bearings, and chunks of the pressure cooker shoot out like a hundred speeding missiles into the crowd. The young boy takes the brunt of the impact. An off-duty firefighter rushes over to Martin and begins chest compressions, but it's no use. The boy is gone. A Cambridge mom named Tracy Monroe is running away from the blast when she suddenly stops. She realizes that people are hurt and they need help. She fights the crowd and pushes her way back to Forum. Tracy sees a child lying on the street and immediately thinks of her young daughter, Stella. As a man applies a tourniquet to the child's wounded leg, Tracy places the child's head in her lap. She can't tell whether it's a boy or a girl. The child's hair has been burned off. Look at me, baby, Tracy says. They're taking care of you. What's your name? Jane, the victim replies. How old are you? Seven, she says. The child is Jane Richard, Martin Richard's younger sister, and she'll lose her leg on this day. Ling Zi Lu, a Boston University student from China, was on her way to the Apple Store on Boylston Street when the second bomb exploded. Now, she's lying on the sidewalk, screaming in pain, bleeding to death from a severed femoral artery in her left leg caused by the jagged and twisted metal. A doctor rushes over and tries to save her. He sees bits of another victim's bone fragments penetrating Ling Zi's open wounds. She has only seconds more to live. Another woman named Heather Abbott has been blown off her feet and catapulted through the front door and into the restaurant. Heather is paralyzed by fear and feels that her left foot is on fire. She tries to stand, but her left foot is useless. She starts crawling toward the back of the restaurant, screaming for help. A married couple comes to her aid. It's Erin and Matt Chatham. Matt is a big guy and a former two-time Super Bowl champion with the New England Patriots. The ex-linebacker picks Heather up and carries her outside into a back alley while his wife Erin prays at Heather's side. A surgeon and a nurse who just happen to be at Forum rush over and use a belt to cinch a tourniquet tightly above Heather's knee. It's a move that saves her life. Back at Marathon Sports, Michelle LaRue finds the store manager. His name is Sean O'Hare. Michelle can now see her own gruesome injuries. She's got a flap of flesh hanging from her left arm and the muscle is sagging out. She sees blood, a lot of blood, her blood. O'Hare and others begin pulling t-shirts off the racks and tearing them into tourniquet strips. Another man pulls off his belt and wraps it around Michelle's shoulder. Just outside, Mary Daniel is lying helplessly on the ground. She opens her eyes and gazes down at her broken body. Blood is pouring out everywhere. Her nostrils are filled with the pungent odor of burning flesh. As a medical student, Mary knows that many of her major arteries are destroyed. She wants to get up and use her medical training to help others, but she can't move. She immediately thinks of her daughter, Ciara, and thanks God that she has not brought her child here to this hell. Will my child grow up without a mother, she thinks to herself. Am I going to die here? At that moment, Mary Daniel slips into unconsciousness. 
Carlos Arredondo has spent the entire day handing out American flags to runners at the finish line as a way to remember his two dead sons. One was killed in action in Iraq, while the other had taken his own life. Carlos is across the street when the first bomb explodes. He immediately runs toward the smoke and jumps over the barricade to help the wounded. He lands on his feet in the middle of a pile of burning limbs. Carlos spots a young man lying on the ground with makeshift tourniquets around both legs. It's Jeff Bauman, and he's being treated by an ER surgeon from Georgia. Now Jeff's injuries are beyond severe. His right leg has been blown off at the knee. His left leg is a gross distortion of raw, burning flesh and charred bone. Carlos helps lift Jeff into a wheelchair and then rushes him to an ambulance. A photograph of Carlos in his cowboy hat helping the critically wounded Jeff Bauman is circulated around the world and becomes an iconic image of that day. In death, she is smiling. Crystal Campbell, the young restaurant manager, is now lying on a stretcher in the back room of a medical tent on Boylston Street. Danny Keeler doesn't know who she is, but she looks serene. The victim has no identification, no driver's license or credit cards on her body. She has black gunpowder marks covering the freckles of her youthful face. An attendant turns Campbell onto her stomach briefly so that Keeler can inspect her injuries. Her skin is charred and her back has been blown apart by scalding shrapnel. Keeler looks down at her lifeless body and silently grieves for her parents, whoever they are. He's seen many homicide victims in his career, but nothing like this. The detective then gathers his unit at a nearby California Pizza Kitchen restaurant. The images he's seen are almost too much to bear. He goes behind the bar, grabs a bottle of Jameson whiskey, pours himself a shot and guns it down, the whiskey burning and then numbing his throat. He thinks about what to do next. The FBI is now on the scene with its cybercrimes unit, but where are the bomb techs? There might be other devices along the marathon route. At this moment, Keeler makes a decision that will change the course of the investigation. He orders his men to gather up all the cell phones owned by spectators and all the surveillance videos from all the businesses at the finish line. Our bombers have been captured by surveillance cameras or in the background of somebody's cell phone picture, Keeler tells the cops under his command. We'll find them. Word gets back to Danny Keeler that the bodies of Ling Ji Lu and eight-year-old Martin Richard have not been removed from the scene. To the FBI, they are no longer human beings. They are now evidence. Danny Keeler is furious. Keeler and his men stand toe-to-toe with the FBI techs. A Boston police captain named Frank Armstrong stands vigil over Martin Richard's body. Whoever this boy is, he explains to Keeler, I want to be able to tell his father that your son was never left alone. Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. 
This episode is brought to you with thanks to our sponsor, Work Local in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Music in this episode was provided by Chris Spagone. You can reach Chris on Instagram at chrysalaneousart. For more on the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. That's Mudhouse with two Ds. And for the latest updates on their podcast and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, please visit fortpointmedia.com.